0: Thurgood Marshall, perhaps best known as America's first African-American Supreme Court Justice, he also had a profound contribution to the NAACP with his pursuit of racial justice and promoting racial equality during the Civil Rights Movement. As a practicing attorney, he argued a record-breaking 32 cases before the Supreme Court, winning 29 of them. In fact, Marshall represented and won more cases before the Supreme Court than any other person. During his 24-year term as a Supreme Court Justice. Marshall passionately supported individual and civil rights and guided his policies and decisions. Most historians regard him as an influential figure in the shaping of social policies and upholding the laws to protect minorities. Hi, I'm Country Boy from the One Mike Black History Podcast. And as you might have guessed, this story is about the legacy of Thurgood Marshall. If you like this, please consider donating to our Patreon page or buy me coffee and please give us 5 stars on Apple Podcasts. But, without further ado, let's get started. Born in Baltimore, Maryland in July 2nd, 1908, he was actually named Thurgood after his great grandfather, but it was later shortened to just Thurgood. Thurgood Marshall was the grandson of a slave from the Congo and his father William Marshall was a railroad porter turned steward at an all-white country club. His mother, Norma Williams, was a school teacher who instilled in him an appreciation for hard work and always standing up for yourself. If someone calls you a nigger, you address him right here and now. After completing high school in 1925, Marshall was accepted to Lincoln University. Lincoln University was a top choice for the brightest black students on the East Coast. Their good followed his brother, Aubrey William Marshall, to the historically black Lincoln University, and some of his classmates at Lincoln was the poet and author Langston Hughes, the future president of Ghana, Kwame Nkrumah, and he was friends with jazz musician Cab Galloway. After his freshman year to help pay tuition, he worked off campus with his father at the Gibson Island Country Club in Chesapeake Bay and offered a golfing and sailing haven for Baltimore's white upper class. Willie Marshall was in charge of hiring an all-black dining room staff at the club and he hired Thurgood Marshall as a waiter during the summer. One day, while working at Gibson Island Club, Thurgood was waiting tables when a U.S. Senator came in. The Senator saw Thurgood and shouted at him, hey nigger!" Marshall who was taught to fight anyone that called him that, and held his temper and went over to the table because he didn't want to lose his job. "Nigger, I want service at this table, shouted the Senator. Marshall decided to play along. The Senator got more and more boisterous to his dinner guests as he held Thurgood shouting out "nigger" and boy. But after dinner was over, he left an astounding $20 tip. He did the same every day for nearly a week, giving Marshall the best paying week of his young life, putting Marshall a step closer to paying his tuition for the upcoming year. But one night... Willie Marshall overheard the senator's language and saw Thurgood running over to his table, bowing and saying, yes, sir. And his father pulled Thurgood to a corner and told him that you're fired. You were disgrace to colored people. Thurgood quickly explained that he was making a lot of money off of the senator's obnoxious behavior. In later years telling the story, Marshall would explain that he told his dad, now I figure that it's worth about $20 to be called a nigger. But the minute you run out of 20s, I'm going to bust you in the nose. Marshall was a changed man from a youngster who was ready to start swinging at the drop of a hat at being called a nigger. After having felt his father's money woes, as well as his mother's ambition to get him into a good college, Marshall was a fast learner in the importance of playing the game if the ends justify the means. In 1930, after graduation, he continued to wait tables because his family needed money and almost every dime was going to pay for the medical school for his brother Aubrey. Marshall dreamed to go to Maryland Law School, it was close to home and had low tuition rates. But Maryland University had only had two black students graduated from the law school and no black student had been admitted since 1890. With no sign of the school change of plans in their policy for black law students, Marshall turned to another option which was Howard University Law School in Washington DC. It was inexpensive and it taught law to black students, but it didn't have the greatest reputation at the time. Marshall was left bitter and never even applied to Maryland Law School, but the issues with Maryland Law School would directly affect him and the direction that he took in his professional life. Thurgood sought admission and was accepted into Howard's Law School, where he met his mentor, Charles Hamilton Houston, who instilled in all his students the desire to apply the tenets of the Constitution to all Americans. Marshall wrote that Charles Houston insisted that we all be social engineers rather than lawyers. These words become a mantra for Marshall. Houston admired Marshall's willingness to work hard, and Marshall wanted to be part of the elite. Paternity of black lawyers who respected, had some money, and seemed to be in control of their destiny. Paramount and Houston's outlook was the need to overturn the 1898 Supreme Court ruling Plessy versus Ferguson, which established a legal doctrine separate but equal. Marshall graduated first in his class and upon his graduation, the insult that he had felt from Maryland University's ban on black students was still burning inside him he wanted to show that he was just as good as any white law student he also wanted to get out of law libraries and deal with real cases making real money and wanted to be his own man so marshall began a private practice in baltimore this was during the middle of the great depression however and money was tight for white americans but it was not existent for black americans Marshall could only afford a tiny office in downtown Baltimore on the 6th floor of the 4th Redwood Street, Phoenix building, which housed most of the city's black lawyers. Marshall's office was a single room dominated by a desk that was lent to him, a phone, and an old rug that was donated to him by his parents that used to be in the living room. The first year of his practice, Marshall lost almost $3,500 clients were so scarce that even lunch money became a major concern. Marshall's lack of work, though, meant that he was able to go on fact-finding missions with Charles Houston who was special counsel for the NAACP. They toured Virginia and Kentucky, Missouri, Tennessee, and the Carolinas and Mississippi to investigate the segregation of schools. Houston often used a movie camera to document the horror conditions, the schools were often wooden structures with no more than shacks with no insulation and it was common to be able to see the sky through the holes in their roof. The floors were often dirt and ran thick with mud when rain fell in and Marshall returned from his trips to the deep south convinced more than ever that they needed to overthrow the racist laws that kept southern blacks poor and uneducated. Meanwhile, Marshall's law practice began to pick up. He was handling divorces, personal injury, car accidents, murder, and some rape cases. He even handled a case for his brother in which Arbery was sued for $2,500 by another murderess who had accused him of reckless driving. In 1935, the Baltimore branch of the NAACP asked him to represent a black suspect, Verilius Lucas. Who was accused of fatally shooting Hyman Brilliant, a white man. The Baltimore police had picked Lucas up and questioned him for three days, severely beating him until he confessed. Marshall used his brother to help explain Lucas's medical condition and went to the city jail and prepared him for trial. In a tense March trial that captivated the city, Marshall stood before an all-white jury and pointed the blame at the Baltimore Police Department. Marshall began his defense by making sure the jury was aware of just how badly his client had been beaten during his arrest. Then he made his client into a more sympathetic figure, a weak-minded boy who had idly shot off his gun in an alley a few blocks away around the time of the murder. The youngster Marshall contended became an easy target for the murder when the police department could not find the real killer, an all-white jury was swayed by the young lawyer's arguments and Lucas was found not guilty of murder and found guilty of manslaughter and sentenced to only six months in prison the Baltimore branch of the NAACP was thrilled that Lucas was not sentenced to death and they were greatly impressed by the young black lawyer who was able to defend a black man against Baltimore's white justice system. Marshall was learning how to work within the constraints of the white legal system, creating a personal network of lawyers and judges within the city and building a reputation for himself as a criminal lawyer. To boast his case for racial equality, Marshall took to heart the advice that he needed to be twice as good as white lawyers. His briefs were carefully written and its arguments were well reasoned. If I filled out a paper in any court, it never had an erasure on it. If I changed a word, it had to be typed over. Marshall's diligence want judges over to his side. Once an opposing lawyer asked a white judge for time to check for a legal citation in Marshall's brief and the judge said that it wasn't necessary. You don't have to worry about Marshall. If he puts a signature on it, you don't have to check it. Marshall's first major court case came in 1935 when he sued the University of Maryland to admit a young African-American Amherst University graduate by the name of Donald Gaines Murray. As early as 1930, the NAACP had hired Nathan Marigold, To come up with a legal approach to stop school segregation, Marigold wrote the NWTP should not challenge racial segregation directly, but insist that states provide equal schools for blacks. The theory was that southern states could not afford to build equal facilities and ultimately would have to admit black students to white schools. Marshall now had his chance to take revenge on the hurt he felt when he discovered that Maryland Law School was closed to him. and He held that hangar for years, later saying that the first thing he wanted to do when he got out of Howard was to get even with Maryland University for not letting them go to their law school. In 1934, Marshall identified a willing plaintiff. Donald Gaines Murray, a black student with good grades from a good college, he had him apply to Maryland's law school and just as he anticipated, Murray's application was denied. University officials suggested he go to the All Black Princess Anne Academy, which was part of the state's university system, but the academy had no law school. When Murray wrote an angry letter of complaint to the school's Board of Regents, they replied that he should consider going to Howard, which was cheaper than Maryland. Marshall stood to argue for Murray and cite the 1927 Supreme Court case of Gone v Rice in which a Chinese girl in Mississippi sued to gain admission to a white College. The court ruled against her because the schools for colored and Chinese children were available in Mississippi, but in Maryland, Marshall argued that there was no state school for blacks. In addition, Murray could not go to an out-of-state school because no law school in the country could equal the University of Maryland at teaching the laws of the state of Maryland. The next day, in shocking fashion, the judge ruled in favor of Murray. Marshall had successfully argued that the University of Maryland had violated the 14th Amendment guarantee equal protection under the law by denying an African American applicant to his law school solely based on race. However, in 1936, while he had increasingly engaged in NAACP work, Marshall's practice was in serious trouble. He had a few small cases, but even when he won, it took forever for him to get paid. So Marshall convinced Houston to hire him on as a staff lawyer for the NAACP. When Marshall arrived in New York in October of 1936, the NAACP was blossoming into a major organization. At 26 years old, the group had gone through its infancy in which it nurtured mostly by white social workers, black and white liberal activists against lynching. Slowly, though, it flowered into a premier agency to battle Jim Crow discrimination. With W.E.B. Du Bois editing the NAACP's magazine, The Crisis, the NAACP had become the civil rights organization of choice by most African Americans. Just joining NAACP was an act of defiance in the South, but as they grew, the NAACP remained heavily dependent on white philanthropists and the legal department's budget, Marshall's first year at their headquarters was only $10,000 and Charles Houston's salary was $4,000. After legal expenses and travel, there was only 2400 left for Marshall's salary, which is about $45,000 today. The MLACP's initial goal was to funnel Eagle resources to black schools, but Marshall successfully Asked the board to only litigate cases which would address segregation. Marshall became the key strategist in an effort to end racial segregation. In a particularly meticulous challenge against Plessy versus Ferguson, Marshall felt that he could have success in Missouri challenging Plessy versus Ferguson because there were no historically black colleges with a program that could use for cover. Houston decided that the state. Was a perfect target for a suit, and he got a black college student by the name of Lloyd Gaines to apply to their law school. Houston viewed the Missouri suit as key to NAACP's effort to desegregate schools nationwide, and he laid the groundwork for the argument that no separate but equal schools existed for blacks and there was no option but to integrate. I firmly believe that the Missouri case is going to set the pace for Negro professionals and graduate education for the next generation. The case finally worked its way up to the Supreme Court in December of 1938. It was a surprise victory, the court ruled that the University of Missouri had to admit Gaines to their law school. Houston had successfully used the Donald Gaines Murray case in Maryland to persuade the high court that Gaines had the right to attend Missouri's law school, but while the Murray case only had impact in Maryland, the Supreme Court ruling in the Missouri case would be felt nationwide. The state of Missouri was not easily defeated. In 1939, officials built a new Jim Crow law school at the historically black school of Lincoln University in Jefferson City. The state claimed that with separate but equal facilities for Gaines, there was no need to admit him to the University of Missouri. The NAACP's lawyers rushed to argue that Gaines cannot be admitted to the university because the new school would not be open in time. After the lower court disagreed, the Missouri Supreme Court ruled in favor of the NAACP, but Gaines had grown tired of the constant press, and he left home one day to buy stamps and was never seen again. In January of 1940, the state of Missouri asked to dismiss the case due to the absence of the plaintiff, and the courts agreed. Under the leadership of Charles Hampton Houston, the NAACP had carefully moved forward, resisting the urge to overreach. The NAACP moved case by case, year by year, strategy to undermine the doctrine of separate but equal. Under this gradual approach, the NAACP pursued litigation that would clearly demonstrate that separate but equal resources for black students were unequal to those of whites. Houston's blueprint had pushed Plessy versus Fergus edges rather than try to overturn it outright. The NAACP's attorneys argued equal resources rather than attempt to abolish segregation outright, but Houston had grown tired of the demands of working for a large organization like the NAACP. Another point of irritation is that he had to take orders from Walter White, a man that he had viewed as egocentric. And with that, Houston reduced his responsibilities at the NAACP's headquarters and went home to run his family law firm. By October 1938, Marshall was in the lead chair at the NAACP's National Legal Office in New York. As the NAACP grew as an organization, Marshall had do more traveling across the south to raise money and meet local officials for the NAACP. Marshall's willingness to put up with threats and insults just so he could do NAACP's business and he wasn't opposed to accommodating whites if it's meant that he could make his case in court. Once by traveling by train though, Marshall came face to face with the reality of living as an average black man in the south. I had about a 2 or a 3 hour layover Marshall recalled and while I was waiting I got hungry and saw a restaurant and I decided that if I got hungry I'd go over and put my civil rights in my back pocket and go to the back door and see if I could buy a sandwich. While I was sitting there setting myself up to do just that a white man came up beside me in plain clothes with a giant pistol on his hip and said "Nigger, what you doing here and I said well I'm waiting and he said what the hell did you say? He said, sir, I'm waiting for the train to Louisiana, Streetport." And he said, well, there's only one train that comes through here and that's at four o'clock and you better be on it because the sun never goes down a live nigger in this town. And you know what? I wasn't hungry anymore. It dawned on me that he could blow my head off and he wouldn't even have to go to court. This is Hernando, Mississippi. Travels to the South like this were having an impact on Marshall's thinking on how the NAACP could best come to grips with segregation and racism. In the rural South, Blacks lived under the thumb of segregationist political dictatorship. They had no way of breaking the leadership power struggle that controlled their lives. Black southerners were not just poor, they lacked political strength it's because of the intimidation and outright denial of their right to vote. After several months of crisscrossing the South, Marshall wrote Walter White that winning the right to vote was key to integrating the South and it was an issue all Blacks could rally around. He was convinced that the case would come from one and only place, the state of Texas, were free to select the club's membership. In 1943, the Supreme Court heard arguments in the White primary case. By April of 1944, the court ruled that the white primaries were unconstitutional. If Texas allowed political parties to limit their nominees and votes to whites, the court said that it adopts, endorses, and enforces discrimination against Negroes. Even at the end of his life, Marshall was excited about the victory in the white primary case and he felt that it was the greatest victory of his career. In April of 1950, Charles Houston died from a heart attack, and NAACP's leadership felt that it was the right time for a more aggressive approach. Marshall had to decide how to proceed. In the height of the summer, he convened at the NAACP's headquarters in New York with 43 attorneys from the Legal Defense Fund, the National Legal Committee, and 14 branch and regional leaders, and planned to come up with a strategy to end segregation once and for all. They inaugurated a new era of NAACP litigation. There would be no nudging against Plessy versus Ferguson. The time had come to topple it completely. It was an exceedingly ambitious goal given race relations in the 50s, and Marshall needed a strategy on how to achieve it. In the country's history, no one had ever directly filed a case of challenging public school segregation. Marshall was on the lookout for a case outside of the deep south where he felt NAACP lawyers had a better chance for success with open-minded judges and juries. But in the meantime, there was Clarendon County, South Carolina. The disparities between white and black resources in Clarendon County's school district number 22 were indisputable. The district served a rural community that was three-fourths black, but the county's white students had brick-and-mortar structures that were well-maintained grounds and modern facilities, while the black students took classes in dilapidated wooden shacks with no indoor plumbing and were forced to get their water from a community well and use outhouses no matter the weather. They had no buses, and some black students had to walk up to nine miles to school. To Marshall, Clarendon County was the perfect opportunity to litigate for equal facilities, transportation, and other resources for the county's black children, but it would be foolhardy to push for full segregation. Marshall knew that he had slim odds of winning a victory in South Carolina and he understood how dangerous a legal challenge would be for the case's plaintiffs who would bear the full brunt of white supremacist retaliation for daring the challenge for integration. Marshall's hand was forced, however, by surprising Judge Watts Warren. Warren was a white Charlestonian who actually supported civil rights. Warren, who was past retirement age by 1950, was ready to make one last judicial strike against America's segregated education system. Marshall arrived at Clarity County, ready to argue Briggs V. Elliott in 1950. The suit had come in the name of Lee Plaintiffs. A Army veteran, Harry Briggs, and his wife, Eliza Briggs, who was a maid at a local motel, but Warren challenged Marshall to refile the case as a direct attack on the constitutionality of segregation. The new suit would claim that separate but equal opportunities, even if materially equal, were in denial of Briggs' plaintiff's 14th Amendment rights. Neither man was under any illusions that the case would succeed. Losing was inevitable, but Warren argued by bringing this challenge up in federal court, a loss would guarantee a hopscotch over the U.S. Court of Appeals and place him directly on the Supreme Court docket. Stakes were immense. If the MLACP were to lose his appeal before the highest court in the land, plastic v. Ferguson, would be reaffirmed, and decades of meticulous work would be lost. It may be decades more before another opportunity to challenge segregation would lead on. Marshall was conflicted but decided to push forward with Warren's plan. Bridge yelling was now heard before a 3 judge plano, including Warren. On May 28, 1951, the school district's lawyer attempted to upend the trial with a surprise announcement. Clarendon County's fully acknowledged that black and white students' educational experiences were unequal, and to rectify the situation, South Carolina planned to issue a $75 million state bond to bring Black students' schools up to par. Therefore, there was no need to even hear the case. Marshall was blindsided at first, but he argued that the state statement had no bearing on this litigation since the NAACP's maintained that segregation in and itself was unlawful. And the case proceeded and Marshall's team sought to demonstrate that injury inflicted upon black students by segregated education. Marshall lost Bregg v. Elliott like he was expected. Two of the three judges that heard the case agreed that Clarendon County's black students received an inferior education and called the inequalities to be corrected, but held that the decision of segregated schools remained in the state. But as Judge Warren had foreseen, the loss ensured a Supreme Court appeal. Ultimately, the appeal was consolidated into four cases three years later and led to the landmark. 1954 Brown vs. the Board of Education case. The case originated in 1951 when the public school in Topeka, Kansas refused to enroll the daughter of a local black resident, Oliver Brown, to a school closer to her home, instead requiring her to ride a bus to a segregated black elementary school that was further away. Unlike school districts and other states involved in combined cases, Topeka in the lower case, while still requiring certain changes, found that segregated schools were substantially equal in respect to buildings, transportation, curricula, and the education qualifications of their teachers. Hence, the involvement of the Kansas case in Supreme Court findings hinged on the matter of segregation itself. Brown and 12 other local families in similar situations filed a class action lawsuit in federal court against the Topeka. Board of Education, alleging that its segregation policy was unconstitutional. Then Brown's case and four other cases including Bridges v. Elliott, all related to school segregation first came before the Supreme Court in 1952. The court combined them into a single case under the name Brown versus The, the Board of Education of Topeka. Thurgood Marshall served as the Chief's Attorney for the Plaintiff. Marshall fixated on school segregation case, and everything else, including his home life, took a back seat. No one had to tell him this was the biggest case of his career. This case could change the face of American society as we knew it. On December 9, 1952, over 200 people church out on the cold, white marble steps leading up to the Supreme Court. Many people were there overnight, hoping to get a seat to hear the case. Marshall stated that black students in Topeka who attend segregated schools, even if the schools were equal facilities, were being denied an equal educational opportunity. The Constitution does not stop with the fact that you have equal facilities, but it covers the whole educational process. Paul E. Wilson, the Assistant District Attorney for Kansas, didn't even want to argue the case. He tried to refuse to come to Washington, it was only after the Supreme Court found that Topeka was willing to let the NAACP's case go unchallenged in the highest court that he insisted on attending. Wilson based his defense on the 1896, it's our theory that this case revolves itself simply as this: whether the separate but equal doctrine is still the law. Wilson's argument put that issue squarely on the Supreme Court. The state of kansas he argued was happy to do whatever the court decided but the court had never overturned the law separate but equal over the next two days virginia delaware and dc cases were argued before the supreme court with similar arguments by 33 days after the case had started all five cases had been heard and marshall had exhausted marshall was exhausted and went home to new york At first, the justices were divided on how to rule on school segregation, with Chief Justice Freddie Venison holding the opinion that Plessy v. Ferguson's verdict should stand. Then, on June 8, 1953, the Supreme Court surprised Marshall and the nation. The court issued five questions to lawyers on either side of the case. The questions were mostly historical. For example, did the framers of the 14th Amendment attend for it to end? school segregation. The Supreme Court had the power to abolish school segregation, and how would school integration be managed if the court were to vote to mix black and white school children? The questions were a legal puzzle, but more importantly, they were a delaying tactic. In 1952, a new president was in office, Dwight D. Eisenhower, and some members of the court felt that the Eisenhower administration needed time to deal with the decision. However, in September 1953, Judge Fennison died, and Dwight Diaz replaced him with Earl Warren, who was then the governor of California. New Chief Justice helped persuade the other justices into a unanimous decision against school segregation. In a decision issued on May 17, 1954, the court concluded that it's it's opinion that declaring that segregation schools were inherently unequal and violated the Equal Protection Clause. The Equal Protection Clause is part of the first section of the 14th Amendment in the United States Constitution. The clause provides that nor shall any state deny any person within its jurisdiction equal protection under its laws. It mandated that individuals in similar cases be treated equally by law and therefore segregation of public schools was unconstitutional. We conclude that it was our field in public school education and that the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. Therefore, we hold that the plaintiffs and other similar situations for whom the actions are brought are by reason of the segregated plain complained of deprived of equal protections by the laws guaranteed of the 14th amendment. This landmark case was considered Marshall's greatest victory as a civil rights lawyer. In 1961, newly elected President John F. Kennedy was wanted Marshall as a judge to the United States Second Court of Appeals. 30 years earlier, When starting his law practice on a shoestring budget, he had fantasized about becoming a local judge. People used to call me a liar when I tell them as a young lawyer in Baltimore, my highest aim was to become a magistrate. Then there were only two black magistrates in the county, but a judge's life was Very different from the daily life of the legal defense fund for the NAACP. There were no wild characters coming in and out of his office, and his phones barely rang. There was almost no talk of the latest racial crisis. He missed the sudden request to jump on the next plane or walk into a hostile courtroom. Marshall served as a circuit court judge over the next four years. Marshall issued more than 100 decisions, none of which were overturned by the Supreme Court. In 1965, Kennedy's successor Lyndon B. Johnson appointed Marshall to serve as the first Black Solicitor General, the attorney designed to argue on behalf of the federal government before the Supreme Court. In July of 1956, President Johnson called Third Group Marshall, With the civil rights movement taking to the streets, with marches to protest, and people being beaten up for demanding their voting rights, in the middle of all this turmoil, Marshall held a unique status, he was a respected black leader, but he was also an advocate for law and order, to talk for a few minutes, and Johnson said, I want you to do my solicitor general, the job offer hit Marshall like a ton of bricks, it was a godsend for a man who was bored as an appeals court judge, but he immediately realized that he couldn't just leap and take the job. He had deep concerns about leaving a lifetime appointment with a guaranteed pension, and an annual salary of a Solicitor General was $4,500 less than his current salary. Well, Mr. President, I have to think it over, he responded. And the President told him to take as much time as he wanted. But as soon as Marshall arrived in his office the next morning, the phone rang and the president was on the line. Marshall was surprised to hear from him so quickly. He said, well, Mr. President, you said I had all the time I needed. And Johnson replied, you had it. And in an instant, Marshall made a decision that would affect the rest of his life. Marshall decided to grab a moment and he told the president that he would be glad to be the nation's first black solicitor general. During his first two years as Solicitor General, Marshall won 14 of 19 cases he argued before the Supreme Court. In 1967, following the retirement of Judge Tom C. Clark, President Johnson appointed Marshall the first black justice to the Supreme Court, claiming that it was the right thing to do, the right time to do it, the right man, and the right place. Marshall was nervous though, the three previous Supreme Court nominees had gone from nomination to confirmation in just two weeks, but the Judiciary Committee had delayed the start of the hearings for Marshall for a month. They wanted to take time to go over every inch of his background. Senator. Robert Byrd of West Virginia wrote Jacob Hoover to ask for FBI background checks on Marshall's alleged ties to Communists, Senator Strom Thurmond of South Carolina had his staff prepare obscure questions on, on the Constitution to test Marshall's knowledge of the law, and Senators Sam and Irving and John McClellan had his staff comb through Marshall's opinion during his time on the Second Circuit as well as his briefs during solicitor general. Marshall's opponents were loading up for attack to attack him as a weak lawyer and as a judicial activist who was soft on crime. Despite these challenges, October 2nd, 1967, Marshall was sworn in as a Supreme Court Justice, becoming the first African American nation to serve on America's highest court. Marshall joined a liberal Supreme Court Justice led by Justice Earl Warren and Justice William J. Brennan. While they aligned with Marshall's views on politics and the Constitution, Marshall once bluntly described his legal philosophy as you do what you think is right and let the law catch up. The statement, which his conservative detractors argued, was a sign of his embracement of judicial activism. In the beginning, Marshall had very few dissents. Generally, he voted on the liberal line. During his tenure on the Supreme Court, he was a steadfast liberal and stressed the need for equal treatment of the country's minorities by the state and federal government. He was committed to making the U.S. Constitution work for everyone, and his approach was an attempt to fashion a sliding scale of interpretation to equal protection clause that would weigh on the objectives of the government against the nature and interests of the groups affected by the law. Marshall's sliding scale was never adopted by the Supreme Court, but several major civil rights cases and in the 70s, the court echoed Marshall's views. By the 1970s, however, the conservative Warren Berger led the court, and it was growing pressure in both the court and politicians to stop school desegregation. An angry white backlash was beginning to take shape, and Marshall nonetheless persuaded his colleagues in the Swan v. Charlotte Mecklenburg case to unanimously confirm that there was nothing wrong with using busing to integrate schools. Berger and other conservative judges had generally supportive of the idea of busing from the start, but Marshall held his full support of the majority's opinion while pushing Berger for several small changes. Marshall wanted to give the federal courts as much leeway to get black and white students in school together, and he postured the Chief Justice to make the strongest ruling possible. The objective today remains to eliminate from all schools any vestiges of state and poll segregation, Burger wrote. Heeding Marshall's advice, the Chief Justice concluded that desegregation plans are not limited by walk in schools and busing was an appropriate way to racially integrate schools. In 1973, Roe v. Wade and Doe versus Bolton hit the docket. The cases revolved around state and Georgia statutes limiting abortions. Norman McCovey identified as Jane Roe to protect her identity in the case was a single woman in Texas who had been raped and demanded a legal abortion under her constitutional right to privacy. Mary Doe, an unidentified Georgia woman, was not pregnant but had a neutral chemical disorder and her doctor had said that pregnancy could threaten her life and Doe wanted to be able to get an abortion if she became pregnant. The cases were argued in december 1971 and reargued argued in october 1972 the state court was immediately buffed by a storm of the public argument with feminist groups asserting that the decision to have an abortion was a private issue for a woman marshall was sympathetic to this perspective from his experience as an advocate for poor blacks going back to his days in baltimore and harlem he heard stories about penniless black women who suffered and died by the hands of a hack willing to do an illegal abortion and in justice conferences Marshall asserted that poor women needed to be able to have legal abortion since which women would find a way around state laws by going to private clinics or leaving the country completely. He took an active role in arguing that abortion should be viewed as a constitutional right. The conservative wing was divided on the issue with Rehnquist and White firmly opposed to making abortion a constitutional right, however, Chief Justice Berger, and Justice Powell and Stewart signed on with Marshall as well as the three other liberal judges. The writing on the historical decision was assigned to Harry Blackmun. Marshall was openly aggressive in shaping Blackman's opinion. The initial draft limited abortions to the first three months of pregnancy, and Justice Brennan, however, proposed a three month limit to replace with a new standard of when the fetus is viable outside of the mother's body. At urge of this clerks Marshall sent a memo to Blackman in support of Brennan's ideas, that given the difficulties in which many women have in believing that they are pregnant and deciding to seek an abortion, I fear that an earlier date would not practice in the best interest of those women. Marshall wrote that he argued that it made no sense to outlaw abortion if a baby cannot live on its own outside of the womb. Marshall's letter in combination with Brennan's arguments persuaded black men and the controversial ruling allowed abortion until the fetus was viable outside of the mother's body and also any pregnancy that threatened the life or health of the mother. As Marshall served on the Supreme Court, it it underwent a period of a major ideological change. In the early years on the bench, he felt comfortable with the liberal majority under the leadership of Chief Earl Warren, but as years passed, however, and many of his closest allies, including Warren, either retired or died in office, creating opportunities for Republican presidents to swing the pendulum for activism to a conservative direction. By the 80s and 90s, Marshall was now an unfashionable left winger in Washington. Washington and no conservative president was going to celebrate an old civil rights activist. Marshall would be out of tune with the president's policies and any new appointments on the Supreme Court. And By the time he retired in 1991, he was known as the Great Dissenter with last remaining liberal members of the Supreme Court dominated by a conservative majority. After he retired, he was replaced with Judge Clarence Thomas. In January 24, 1993, Marshall died of heart failure at National Naval Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. He was 84. And normally, this would be where people's legacy would end. But in 1996, the USA Today broke the news that the late Supreme Court judge, a civil rights lawyer, had acted as an informant for the Federal Bureau of Investigations during the 50s. The story only surfaced after the FBI finally responded to a request for the agent's files on Marshall through the Freedom Information request. Three years after Marshall died, the FBI turned over 1,300 pages worth of material on the late justice. Early in his career, Marshall's actions against state sponsored segregation as a young attorney, then as a staff lawyer for the NAACP, and later acting as chief counsel, caught the eye of the FBI. Marshall was a member of the National Lawyers Guild, a group that represented labor unions, civil rights groups, and during the Red Scare in the late 40s and early 50s. A number of suspected communists. Files during that era showed that the Bureau monitored the group very closely, even wiretapped its members and asked for personal denouncements from its associates. Marshall was on the FBI's radar because of his membership with the National Lawyers Guild. J. Hoover's boss, The Attorney General Tom Clark kept getting complaints from Marshall about the behavior of Hoover's FBI agents in the South. Marshall regularly charged the FBI with not investigating hate crimes committed by white racists or even lynch mobs against blacks. Marshall said that Hoover's agents spent their time covering up for their friends in white sheriff's departments who were sympathetic to the mobs. Marshall even met with J. Edgar Hoover after they exchanged a series of heated letters criticizing the FBI. He had been on the FBI sites before, but now Marshall was well aware that he was being spied on, and he tolerated the surveillance in exchange for the ability to be able to insulate the NAACP. Marshall and the FBI were increasingly concerned that communists were infiltrating the NAACP, and Walter White supported Marshall, but White was very sensitive to the possibility of political fallout from a battle with J.A. Hoover. White continued to court the bureau's leader because he knew the NAACP could not afford to get on Hoover's hit list, and he and Marshall wondered if cooperating with the Federal Bureau of Investigation would protect the NAACP from accusations of communism. Marshall and other civil rights leaders knew that being associated with communism at the height of the Red Scare would diminish the organization's credibility and damage reputation. And in a pivotal 1950 NAACP convention in Boston, they had a far-reason resolution to call for a systematic purge of combatants from its ranks. Predictably, the FBI was not satisfied with these sweeping purges. And in 1956, Marshall continued to consult with the FBI about allegations of communist infiltration in the NAACP. Marshall thought that he might be able to shield the NAACP if he exchanged information about communists and perhaps focused the FBI on other organizations instead. So he began feeding select information to the FBI. Marshall repeatedly contacted the FBI against people like North Carolina NAACP chapter leader Robert F. Williams, who had run a file with the FBI because of his refusal to go along with the prevailing tactic of passive, nonviolent resistance. In 1959, Monroe juries acquitted two white men of assaulting a black woman, and William made his courthouse declaration. Since the federal government will not stop lynching, and since so-called courts lynch our people legally, if it is necessary to stop lynching with lynching, then we must resort to that method and meet violence with violence. This led to his suspension from the NAACP and eventually led to Williams fleeing from the south and relocating in Cuba. Marshall would continue to point fingers at other suspected communists. And he kept the channels of communications open with Hoover and the FBI. Unbeknownst to Marshall, though, Hoover had set up COINTELPRO, a secret FBI program that specifically targeted disruptive domestic political organizations like the civil rights movement. He authorized his agents to expose, disrupt, mistrust, misdirect, discredit, and otherwise neutralize various organizations. Although this didn't include the NAACP, There was significant crossover between the movement. The cooperation with J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI seemed to have another effect for Marshall. It supported and bolstered his rising career. Marshall noted that he was convinced that I was responsible for routing out communists out of the NAACP, and I did. But it's uncertain exactly how much Hoover's approval of Marshall helped him professionally or how the civil rights movement might have fared without fbi interference but it's worth noting that hoover was one of the most powerful men in the federal government hoover had headed the fbi since 1924 and was deeply entrenched in the bureau and politics in washington and he had seen many presidents come and go given the fbi's meddling in the fight for civil rights it's easy to interpret Marshall's actions as those of a traitor who was only there to serve his self-interest over that of the civil rights movement but it's easy to forget the price that a group could pay for being associated with communists during the Red Scare of the 50s. Groups and individuals risk being socially ostracized, imprisonment, the loss of tax-exempt status, and the loss of the ability to practice law. Although Marshall never spoke in length about his cooperation with the FBI during his lifetime, his letter and his brief interviews revealed that he thought that he helped the NAACP by protecting them from the FBI's wrath. Marshall's relationship with the FBI shows that he knew what was at stake for the civil rights movement and compromises needed to be made. In the end, Marshall's status was as a pillar of the civil rights movement who worked diligently and tirelessly to uphold the principles of civil rights. and He saw the end of segregation as the only way possible to ensure equality. He protected minorities and the poor for being isolated and left behind. An integration of racial groups guaranteed everyone's investment in the common good of the nation's future. And I'll leave you with this quote from Thurgood Marshall. A man can make what he wants for himself if he truly believes that he's ready for hard work and many heartbreaks. Thank you, Country Boy. This has been one of my Black history. And this was the life of thurgood marshall and i'll leave you with some ideas what do you think about thurgood marshall did you think he was a traitor do you feel like he was a traitor with his cooperation with the fbi or do you think that the ends justify the means with that if you like this you love this please consider donating to our patreon page or my buy me coffee and give us five stars on apple Podcasts. and peace